If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Well, since my ears left me, I found an old place to dwell. It's down at the end of the lonely street in See You Podcast Hell. I'm real lonely, baby. Broadcasting lonely. I'll be podcasting till I die. Welcome to the completely unnecessary podcast for Thursday, May 25th, 2017. I am riding solo since Ian's ACNES is acting up on him. He doesn't feel well. He'll probably be back for the 100th episode. Yes, this is episode 99 of the CU podcast. And what an episode we have for you today. I'll be talking about my trip to Norway I just got back from. A new Zelda mobile game has been announced. A new Super Nintendo game might be coming out. Uh, bootleg Amiibo figures. Uh, figure cards are being being sold. Uh, the ARMS Nintendo Direct. Something going on with Coleco that's not <laughs> related to the Chameleon. Uh, the Not For Resale documentary. And your Q&A, which right now is one question. Let's talk about Let's talk about my trip to Norway. And for those watching the video version of this, uh, Ian's not here. He's not feeling well. I already did that for the audio podcast. Why aren't you guys subscribed to the audio podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play? You should be. Anyway, Norway is a fun trip. This was my second year there. It's rough, though, because not just the travel time, which from the West Coast to Scandinavia is about 16 to 17 hours of travel time. It's also the fact that when you get there, you don't realize the sun is always up. So it's up for, for 20 hours a day, like like right before midnight it gets dark, and then 4 a.m. you hear the freaking seagulls chirping, the sun's up, and your body's like, what the hell's going on, and it's hard to get adjusted. But what was great about Norway, besides seeing my friends like Brennel Floss, uh, Norm the Gaming Historian, uh, being roommates with my pal Gerard the Completionist, was meeting people you don't necessarily get a chance to meet. For example, uh, David Doak, who worked with Rare in the late 90s. David Doak worked on games like Donkey Kong Country 3. He worked on Time Splitters. Uh, but what I wanted to pick his brain about was his work on GoldenEye. He was a lead designer on that the seminal console first-person shooter. And it was interesting, the conversation we had, it was on the way to on the way to a restaurant there. I think it was a Friday night before Retro Spill Messin, which was the convention that I went to. And I was just trying to pick his brain about what, what it was like working on GoldenEye at the time. And uh, I asked him, for, like, first off, like, do you imagine, or could you imagine th- uh, this game you're working on being, like, still worshipped and put on a pedestal 20 years later after its release? And he told me, like, absolutely not. Like, he couldn't imagine that he'd be asked to a convention in another country to talk about you know, a game and other games that, you know, he worked on, they just treated it as a job. Like, we, we, you know, we worked on this stuff for a year, year and a half. You know, we, we did this game, and, and then we moved on to the next the next one. It, it, I guess it's hard to place yourself out of that when you're so connected to uh, 
a, a piece of entertainment and art that once you're done with it, you don't want to look at it ever again. Whether it's, you know, film directors say the same thing. I said the same thing with a certain NES guidebook where I don't want to look at it for a while after you're done with it because when you're, when you're living with it, with it day in and day out, it's hard to take a step back and have perspective uh, about it. Uh, but David then also told me other cool little tidbits. Um, I asked him, for example, you know, were they surprised about being able to do the four players uh, on the N64? Like, was that something that gave them trouble? And he said, well, when you think about it, you are splitting up the resolutions into four screens. So, you know, the amount of detail in those four corners is actually only a quarter of the detail of the full screen. So when you think about that, that helped them out a lot uh, when they were developing uh, that mode, a four-player or three, if you have three screens for multiplayer. I said, oh, that actually makes sense then. So in theory then, you're, you know, it's this, it's the same amount of horsepower except when you have all the characters on the screen. And he said, he said yes. Like, for example, when you're playing... Uh, the you know just the 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 one the, the single player campaign the game only really starts to really slow down and be you know the, and the frames really go down when there's like like explosions happening or when there's too many enemies on screen that's when it happens otherwise it's fine and he said to get around that um, they had very simple multiplayer levels so if you go back and play GoldenEye it makes sense when you look at like the stacks or the caverns for example or the you know or the uh, like the pyramid you're inside it. They're not the most complex levels. A lot of times you're looking at, you know, just, uh, you know, bare walls. You're looking at, uh, you know, the ceiling. They're usually all similar color, not too, not too complex. And he said that was a way to get around that and sort of save, uh, save processing power and able to actually do that mode. But I also asked him about all the different modes they put in uh, the multiplayer uh, options, you know, slappers only, golden gun, you only live twice, uh, big heads, um, all these options, uh, paintball mode, you know, th- these are all modes that when you look at a game that comes out in the mid nineties on a console, that's a first person shooter. These are modes that for the time you weren't seeing on, on another first person shooters like Duke Nukem and doom. They were more simple and you don't see a lot of features like that. even now in first person shooters, like just fun, quote-unquote party modes that really gives the game more life that on paper, you know, oh, we just have a first-person shooter, you shoot people, who cares? But now you have all these modes, you have all the different types of modes for, you know, automatic weapons, you know, mines, um, pistols only, you know what I mean? Like, they went above and beyond with that. And when I asked David about that, he basically said this is the best answer when it comes to game development. He said, we wanted to put in options that that we wanted and the games that we wanted to play. Which makes perfect sense that they had the liberty to do that. But what also helped was the fact that he said that there wasn't really a push uh, by Nintendo uh, to, to get the game out. So as you remember, you know, GoldenEye was published by Nintendo even though it was developed by Rare. Um, so GoldenEye movie came out in 95, Right? The video game didn't come out until, let's see, August 97. That is two years after the movie is released. I want you to think about that. I know it was a different time, but you're talking about a major IP, a a major movie license you have for a video game. Imagine today a major movie coming out, and then the video game version of that movie not coming out for 
like, like two years afterwards, it's pretty unheard of. Uh, they usually like to capitalize on the popularity of a movie when it gets released to release the game. Yes, there's delays, but two years? Wow. And I know you have a lot of those like Sega Marvel games that got poor reviews that were sort of pushed out there in the past. Uh, so that's the bad part about pushing out a game to make sure it comes out. I'm just saying it rarely happens. And so what David uh, told me was that they really got no pressure and they could take basically all the time they wanted to at the time to get the game out there. And so thank God for that. Because it allowed them to, you know, perfect things, allowed them, allowed them to put in all the modes they wanted, and um, you can see, it. I mean, the game is, you know, one of the most popular games of its era on the N64, it's one of the probably top five most popular games, and it's a game that people go back to today, you know, and I've been told them that, yes, for, uh, me personally at the time, I wasn't too into the game because I was a, a you know, a first person shooter snob from the PC, you know, at the time I was playing stuff like Duke Nukem, uh, you know, I'd play Doom, and so for me, it's like, what's the big deal about this game? You know, to me, it's just a first-person shooter with inferior controls, and i got to split my screen up with three other people, and I can't see what I'm doing. But that aside, which he laughed at, Dave, he was a good sport, um, it was still revolutionary. Absolutely. So David was a great guy uh, to talk to about this. On our way to the restaurant... That happened to serve whale, by the way, and that kind of freaked me out. But it was legal, though. It was a it was a species of whale, I guess, in Norway that they're allowed to hunt for food. Uh, it's not endangered in any way. I felt uncomfortable ordering it. Other people did. I did have a bite. I felt weird about it. Uh, as an aside, all I could picture the whole time was that big whale eye just looking at me. Please don't eat me. Uh, whale tasted like a fishy London broil. Is the best way I, I could put it. People around me liked it. I thought it was okay. Felt weird after eating it. That's all I'll say about that. But anyway, back to back to back to Goldeneye. Uh, the other thing I asked him about was: was there any um, any sort of pushback from the you know people that owned the the Bond franchise at the time, which I think was still Eon and United Artists, I believe. You know, they give the right to do this Goldeneye game, but there's so many things in the game that have nothing to do, you know, with Goldeneye in terms of uh, tons of the, you know, the weapons, uh, you know, th- you have throwing knives, you have uh, Oddjob and Jaws as, as playable characters. You know, th- those are guys from, from movies that had come out 20 or 30 years before, which that's surprising to say. And he said that they were pretty cool about, about that. Like, they gave him the license, the license to kill, the license to program Goldeneye and use almost whatever they wanted from from the Bond lore. So an interesting thing that I don't know, I have to search for this. You guys can. Um, there, maybe there's a hack out there that, with four different James Bond characters. He said in the version they had that there was a, not just the Pierce Brosnan, there was a Timothy Dalton, a Roger Moore, and also a Sean Connery James Bond model to be used. And he not just said that, that they kind of looked like them, but also the fact that they played differently. He couldn't remember exactly how, but there was differences differences to all four bonds, which that blew me away. I'd never heard of that before, and I just could imagine that. Yeah, imagine playing through the single player campaign or multiplayer, being able to have four bonds, you know, different bonds go at each other. I'm a big Timothy Dalton fan. Originally, he he was supposed to be in Goldeneye, and he turned it down. Now I'm thinking about playing that game as as Dalton. That would have been cool. 
I'm not sure what the differences would have been. Maybe some are a little bit quicker, have a little bit slightly better accuracy. Uh, they don't lose as much much health or are better with certain weapons. I don't know. Just the idea was cool. But, but he said that when the bomb people came back right before the release of the game to look at what was done, they were shocked that they didn't. First of all, they didn't like the idea of having multiple bonds. That bonds that that didn't make any sense. And it makes when you think about it, why would they when they have the you know the first movie coming out with a new Bond in it? Oh, excuse me, new actor playing Bond, Pierce Brosnan. I could see that. It's a shame, but I could see that. But they also were surprised by the amount of violence because remember in the mid '90s that they they were, they were trying to go in a different, slightly different direction with the Bond movies once they kind of did that soft reboot with Pierce Brosnan. Not that the violence was cut out entirely, but you know there was violence off screen. Um, it was a little more playful, uh, trying to get away from the more of the hard nose, uh, you know, uh, it basically went back and forth. So like Roger Moore was kind of goofy. Timothy Dalton's two movies were kind of more harder edge, especially with license to kill, which had some violence going on in, in that movie. Uh, which is one of the better underrated Bonds, by the way. Go watch License to Kill again. You're like, wow, this is pretty damn good. And pretty interesting for a Bond movie. But when they brought it back six years later for GoldenEye, they kind of reversed course again and want to be more playful. So they were surprised about the amount of violence and didn't like it, but uh, David said, he told them, like, well, the game's just basically done. Like, this is the game. This is what's going to come out. So the Bond people didn't like that, and they didn't like the fact that um, there were four different bonds in it, so they took out the other three and just had one. I wonder why they didn't put Sir George Lazenby in there. That would have been uh, interesting. They had the, all five at that point. Uh, so my Norway trip was fun. Uh, if you ever want to visit Norway, uh, go see Oslo. Uh, be prepared, though, for the fact that the sun never goes down. But I did learn a lot about GoldenEye, and thanks to David Doak for uh, talking to me about it and you know, on our way to a restaurant that served, served whale that I'll never forget. Did anyone out there check out the ARMS Nintendo Direct? Kind of a surprise little 20-minute presentation. Digital. Obviously, digital. Yeah, it's not going to be with puppets. Uh, Nintendo Direct. <laughs> about a month before E3 to sort of get people hyped. Oh, the beautiful thing about these Nintendo Directs is this. They realize that, you know, uh, as long as the information gets out there, it doesn't matter. They don't have to wait till E3 to do it. It's on their time. It's on their dime. It's on their schedule. They don't have to rent out the Nokia Theater in L.A. for an hour presentation. They can just do their own Nintendo Directs. They can have fun with them. They can put a little comedy in there, but do little skits that they shoot, you know, up there in uh, Seattle at Nintendo headquarters, at Nintendo of America, and they can have a, they can have a good time while also getting the information out there, you know, in the fashion that they want and not stuck to these rigid. Well, we must have all this information out at E3, or you know, they can do it beforehand. They can do it a little bit afterwards. Who cares? E3's relevance is is just nosediving at this point. And Nintendo saw this before, you know, Sony and Microsoft. They saw that, yeah, we'll just do it ourselves. But anyway, the Nintendo Direct came out. And I will say this about ARMS. And I'm not going to be one to admit and lie that I saw ARMS being this big hit or predicting it. When I first saw ARMS, I was like, okay, this looks like the uh, follow-up to Wii Boxing. This looks like a tech demo because you have, you know, two arms you have in theory, right? And you have two Joy-Cons. You twist them. You move them just like arms. I'm like, okay, this is like having almost like the Wii mode. And the Nunchucks from 2006. It, it looks like that. But it's, but it's really not. This is interesting because this has the chance to become what Splatoon was for Nintendo. Where Nintendo now has their own, their own shooter franchise. You know, team shooter, 
not first person, but you know, com- competitive shooting game, third person shooter. I want to say FPS, but it's not three a, a three PS. But this could be their shot of Nintendo having, uh, besides Smash that exists, having their own unique style of of fighting game that could be not just fun but competitive. You know, this could be there, there could be an opportunity here for Nintendo uh, if people sort of glom onto the idea of this sort of um, combination uh, fighting game, but also shooting elements in there um, using space. You know, it's almost like a throwback to Power Stone, having an open environment, running around. There's not many uh, fighting games that are made like this. And yes, you can say, well, you're not really doing hand-to-hand combat as much. Sure, I understand that, but you're still fighting. Um, I actually saw this at Retrospelmessen, the Norwegian Retro Game Convention. Nintendo was there, set up, and they were pushing Splatoon 2. Uh, they had Mario Kart 8 Deluxe for play there. And they had a cool little little ring, mini ring, where you could sample... Uh, arms or take a look at it and so I, I think this is this could be a, the sleeper this could be um, that secondary title where yeah everyone gets uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild or everyone's playing Mario Kart what's the second uh, title that's going to uh, prop up the, the, the Switch sales this year before you get to the huge Super Mario Odyssey at the end of the year this could be it this could be a bigger hit than even Splatoon 2 which is on the way shortly after this is released. Um, I think what's interesting is in this Nintendo Direct, they took the time to really explain all the all the uh, mechanics, uh, the fact that you could, you know, all, all the different types of weapons, the fact that you could have one arm be one weapon, the second arm the other, and you had the the weirdly the weirdly affable Biff announcer with a freaking fist on his head talking about like, oh, here's Biff's. Uh, preferred, uh, I guess, loadout for the character um, in terms of well, if you have a you know uh, a big fist on one, you can have the, the, the you know a shocker on the other. Not 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 that shocker, but a shocker. Uh, you know, you you can have you know the missiles on one arm and the the dragon on the other to have different strategies. It's almost like they're they're sort of just teasing you with the fact that there can be some deep strategy involved with this game uh, that could really, in theory put it up there with other competitive fighting games if you have the time to really dig into it. And I think that's what's appealing to me. Uh, there's 10 different playable characters at this point that they revealed, all with different strengths. You know, some are big and more lumbering. You got the ninja that can teleport. Um, I think there's one uh, one character, one of the female characters can use kicks to deflect incoming uh, attacks. So there's something going on here that um, is intriguing to me as a more traditional fighting fan. But this is something that's going to be... This is going to offer you something that other fighting games uh, are not. Just because it's so out there. Um, so, in theory, then, you're going to have 10 different... 10 different uh, characters you can select with all their different qualities and speeds. But then you have the different arms you could select and unlock and you can purchase with points. So really, this is a chance for you to make your own fighter how you play. And, and not that I'm trying to sound like Nintendo, uh, you know, Nintendo's uh, sales rep here, but compared to other fighting games, this is loads more in terms of customization. Other games, yeah, you might be able to load out your special move or your, you know, EX attack or whatever, but this is really changing how the character is being played from one person to another. You know, in other games, whether you play Tekken 
or Street Fighter 2, if both select the same character, you're both going to basically be playing roughly the same based upon what works and what doesn't. While here, if we both select the same character, that's only the beginning because now how we play, we can be selecting totally different arms, different weapons, of which there are several types uh, besides being indiv- you know, individual ones themselves and unique ones. And then, and then the combination thereof can affect the strategy of how you're playing. Uh, it, it's really interesting to me. It's very intriguing. It, yeah, uh, I'm looking at some of it right now. I think this could be a game that if competitive uh, gamers, uh, especially in the fighting scene, give it a chance and really get there, maybe this could, maybe you'll see this show up at Evo. Like, who knows? That could be, I, I wouldn't put it past it. Why not? I think they have to get past the fact that it's so different, though, in cartoony, right? Will these characters be balanced? That's the other big, big, uh, I guess, factor. If you're looking at, you know, sort of games like Mario Kart, where, you know, there, you can be good depending upon your loadout uh, of your, your car, types of wheels, uh, types of, uh, of, uh, of hang glider, or, or you know, um, and then, the, and then the, the driver yourself. Nintendo, I think, is taking that philosophy and applying it here. It's, you know, basically anyone can be good uh, based upon the type of character. It's not going to be like, you know, unfortunately when you watch some of these fighting tournaments uh, for past Smash games or Street Fighter, uh, it tends to focus on only a very small group uh, are chosen by the elite fighters. They've figured out the game so much that they realize that, hey, if I'm going to play uh, Smash, my best chances is with one of these, you know, handful of characters um, for the elite players. The same with Street Fighter. They figured it out. Or with Marvel versus Capcom, like they figured out, like these are the characters that work the best. So I'm hoping Nintendo has balanced it so much, not just with the combination of the ten characters, but also with the different types of, of arms you can use. That this will be a game that anyone can get in and create their own style, define their own style of play. Um, it's exciting to me. It is, and then the extra features, the two-on-two matchups. Um, the fact that there's like a basketball mode where you can take your opponent and dunk them. There's a, a really weird, cool volleyball mode uh, where, you know, uh, you, you, there's a big ball that you have to punch over the other side. If it hits the ground, it blows up. This, this is this is nice. This is this is not now uh, sort of breaching it from being a pure fighting game experience to maybe being a nice party game as well. Like four players can get into and play arms. At the same time, two on two. I like that idea. I like the. I also like the fact that you know it seems like in terms of having the lobby uh, open for competitive play, you know you can play play some other game. You're called in. That's pretty cool to have that. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this. This comes out July. Let's see, June 16th. Splatoon 2 is in July. Okay, June 16th. One last thing. Uh, you have uh, some 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 overt sex appeal. In uh, in arms, that it was a mini meme for a while. Um, what's her name? Uh, Twin Tell is one of the three or four uh, female characters. It's a movie star, and what's unique about her? Two things unique. One, she's not using her arms to attack; she's using her curly hair to throw the punches, which is interesting. Uh, but the other, the other uh, amazing thing about Twin Tell is that she has a fat ass. In terms of like a big, big ass for her body size, this is like the um, 
Nicki Minaj of arms. And not that that's a, it's not that that's uh, missing from the game or it shouldn't be in there. Hell, who doesn't like, like butts? You can quote me on that. But the fact that it's Nintendo doing this in a game and focusing on it, that the screenshot came out with her, with her hands on her hips uh, in the trailer, and that got screenshot and was all over Twitter. Uh, Twintel's big ass. Nice, big, round, toned ass. Uh, the fact that Nintendo is sort of going after the sex appeal a little bit in this game. Well, it's a fighting game. You always had that. But in Smash, you really didn't have that before. But now they have that. It's almost like sort of... Um, Piggybacking onto you know all the you know the sex appeal of the Overwatch characters, um, and how that was sort of a uh, not that that was a driving force of the game, but that created its own culture. You know the sex appeal uh, of these characters that are in it, uh, and now you're going to have something at least with that character that's also going to show up uh, for Nintendo Arms. So there you have it, Nintendo Arms, selling you uh, stretchy arms and nice round booties. Real quick about the Nintendo Switch getting a Splatoon 2 bundle and new Joy-Con colors in Japan. Um, well, you know, it, it's not a shock that Nintendo could, you know, make any color Joy-Con and sell it. At this point, there's only, you know, three colors. You have red, blue, and gray. But, you know, you're going to get your neon ones coming out. Um, they're going to be neon, green, and pink. Almost like a watermelon combo. And it's going to come, this this package is going to come with, um, let's see, pink grips, green and pink uh, grips. Uh, there's going to be a new Switch Pro controller. There's also going to be Splatoon uh, stickers. So, and there's also going to be a Splatoon-themed Switch carrying case. Uh, what's interesting is that it's only coming out in Japan. And I wonder why that is, why Nintendo feels that it couldn't sell uh, here in the uh, in the U.S. Um I think at some point that would probably come out here as well, but you don't know. The same thing like with the with the new 2DS XL, how there's different colors. You know, there's the blue, the aqua blue one. We're getting, the, I think we're getting the uh, the orange one. Uh, you know, the popsicle colored one, I guess. Uh, just put it out everywhere. I mean, the good news is that you can always import this stuff, but I just think it's strange that they would not feel the need to you know release it uh, here as much. Oh, there's also going to be an arms carrying case. I'm, not, I'm less concerned about the carrying case with this cute little arms punching glove a zipper versus the the, the colored uh, Joy-Cons. To me, that's that's more interesting. And I'm almost surprised that there's not a Breath of the Wild Joy-Con out there uh, yet or Pro Controller. Don't, don't give Nintendo ideas. Uh-oh. A new Super Nintendo game is coming out in Japan. Oh! Well, you know, with homebrew stuff going on, re-releases of you know, games that are licensed out, prototypes that are found and released. Um, it's not a shock that, you know, games 20 years are coming out. But what's special here is that this game was a Satellaview only game, which was a download release for the Satellaview uh, add-on, which was a, a, you know, a download service uh, back in the day in Japan. So the game, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta try to pronounce this name. The game was a side-scrolling sort of uh, hack-and-slasher slash beat-em-up called Kaizu Chujin Shubibinman Zero. We'll just call it KCSZ for short. Uh, it was available for, let's see, between March 30th, 97 and February 
uh, 28th of 98 during the Satella View service. It's a pseudo-sequel to the earlier Kaizu Shoujin Shibibiman and Kaizu Shoujin Shibibiman 2 Aratanaru Teki, known as Shockman in English, and, and Shockman came out here. Um, woo! Alright, so the game is a, is a platformer slash beat-em-up hybrid or hack-and-slasher. You can always make the call for what's the genre dish, uh, what's the genre differences there. Makes use of, according to uh, the Satel of You Wikia, makes use of numerous Japanese toku television cliches in a playful manner. The player guides a character through levels, punching, kicking, and throwing special attacks at putty patrol-like enemies going left to right or down to up until the player reaches the boss. The player must then defeat the boss. Um, the challenge to the game comes when trying to get a very high score at the end. Uh, trying to reach number one is speculated to have been a competitive event between Satellaview players that would result in the award of prizes. Um, it's easy to pick up and play, especially for casual gamers. Um, so that's that's cool. This was developed by Nippon Computer uh, Systems and published by Nintendo. Well, that's the key. Nintendo was a publisher because this release is going to be on a cartridge and I don't think Nintendo is involved with this. So I don't know if there's going to be a cease and desist coming uh, or not. But yeah, it's going to be released in a a Super Famicom cart with the sort of VHS-style box that Super Famicom games had. Some other quick information on uh, this new release that we can just call Shockman Zero uh, for short. <laughs> uh, it looks like, yeah, it looks like the, the, the Nintendo no longer has the, the publishing rights. They should be okay, it looks like. Um, it's for one or two players. And uh, it's interesting is that the description, the, this product is a game cassette that can be enjoyed on 16-bit game machines that are SFC slash SFC compatible, which means Super Famicom. The remodeled town Shubibin Man Zero is a comical and fantastic action game that could be only enjoyed with satellite broadcasting game delivery about 20 years ago. It's Ruby and Azuki, uh, they're the ones fighting to protect the town from the BB team aiming for world conquest. Like, like before, it's like a Side-scrolling with a beat-em-up. It looks like some platforming elements. It's two-player simultaneous action. Um, da, da, da. This may not operate on a certain Super Famicom or Super Famicom compatible machine. It may, de- it may not operate depending upon manufacturing time? What? I guess they're just putting that in uh, as a disclaimer just in case you have your Super Famicom or Super Nintendo or you know maybe have a, a weird clone console. If it doesn't work, they can get away with it, I'm guessing. Let me translate the page on 4gamer.net right here. The game is going to be released uh, da, 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 June, late June 2017. Uh, limited uh, limited quantity. Suggested retail price of 7,000 yen just about, which if we do the math is equal to Yen to dollar, about $63 US. So probably the price of a new Super Famicom game back in the late 90s, that's how much you're going to be paying for this download title. So I, I had never played this before. The graphics look, look cute. Um, 
I think it's it's interesting that a game like this that no one had a chance to buy back then. Hell, we didn't have a chance to even know about it here in North America. Now you have a chance to do that. Um, which means it leads me to another point about probably the most important Satellaview game. Uh, we talked about the Kirby ones before and how they're trying to find a couple of those to preserve them um, on, the, on the download carts that you, know, that you would get for the Satellaview games. How about the Legend of Zelda ones? And getting those uh, backed up or available to play. What if Nintendo even just put out on virtual console the Satellaview uh, Link to the Past games? That would be amazing. They're never going to put on a cartridge, but what if they did that? Uh, I think that would be huge uh, news in the mainstream uh, gaming world, not just for for us uh, weirdo retro gamers. Uh, <laughs> so if you can go on Amazon, you could uh, somehow order this. I, I guess Nintendo doesn't have the rights to this anymore in terms of publishing, uh, I'm guessing. Uh, you can go on right now. Product will be released on June 30th. Uh, I can buy the Amazon Limited Edition or the No Limitation Edition, which is a thousand yen less. So that would cost roughly, I guess, fifty something dollars instead of sixty three. What's the difference? I don't know. Um, hopefully, the next podcast you will not be hearing, you know, a cease and desist uh, story about this. But I think it's great. This is great for game preservation and just getting the the word out because w- without this. Uh, being for sale, it's a game that people like me would may, may have never heard of. May have never heard of this, uh, you know, unique, obscure Satellaview game. All right, I gotta throw some wrestling into here. Why not? Let's talk Jinder Mahal, WWE champion. If you're not familiar with good old Jinder, he came back to the WWE. What was it? Uh, earlier this year, he came back looking a little soft in the in the belly. Not uh, not in the best shape of his life. But boy, did he get into the best shape of his life soon after. He got ripped. He got absolutely ripped. There was a short storyline thing. Where was it? He beat up for... Uh, he beat up... Uh, uh, what's his name? From the three-man band. His partner to get a contract. Heath Slater. So he ends up getting a contract. He shows up on SmackDown. Or whatever. He was bound... I think it was on Raw at first. And he goes to SmackDown. Whatever. He gets absolutely ripped. I mean shredded this guy. Keep in mind, this was a guy that was always uh, treated and looked at as a joke for the most part. He was in a three-man band with Heath Slater. Slater stayed around. He was a tag team champion with Rhino. And then Drew McIntyre, the third man in, got released. Goes to, uh, what, he went to like TNA. Uh, was pretty good there. And he comes back, Drew McIntyre. And um, comes back, and now he's at NXT, and people are excited about him. So it's like they went from being treated as jokes, all of these guys. Uh, they come back after a year or two to the WWE, a couple of years. And I was upset when they broke up the three-man band. I thought they were very entertaining and fun, and they were doing exactly what was asked from them, and the people actually liked them at the time for being just, you know, lovable, quote-unquote, jobbers or enhancement talent or uh, bottom of the card. So they come back. Jinder Mahal comes back. Again, they keep talking about, oh, he's very shredded, he's ripped. Yes, he got into good shape. Probably without the use of supplements because they now do random drug testing. So I'll give them the benefit of the doubt there. But he's still treated as a jobber at first. So he 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 loses very easily and quickly, for example, uh, one week, right before this push I'll talk about. Um, he loses to, uh, let's see, uh, what was his name again? I'm, I'm tired. It's hard to do this without without Ian. Um, Finn Balor comes back. 
and he kicks the shit out of uh, Junior Mahal. Uh, Junior Mahal actually uh, elbows him for real and actually kind of knocks him loopy, actually gave him a concussion, Finn Balor. But that's who, uh, for his whole career, Junior Mahal was, was just a guy to get beat up on. Because, you know, he was average in the ring at best. Charisma, okay. Mike skills, mm, below average. So he was never going to be a guy that would ever be even, you know, Intercontinental Champion or United States Champion. So he goes from being an enhancement talent to winning, you know, uh, winning a match. A, what was it, a fatal four-way or five-way. He wins this match to become number one contender for the WWE Championship against Randy Orton. And people are like, well, this is interesting. Is there no one else that wants to fight for this championship? Uh, the WWE wants to really uh, push at this point. Uh, Orton maybe just needs someone to fight for a month or two. You know, until we get back to, uh, uh, you know, a place where we have real challengers again. And something in my head told me something else was up for this. Uh, something was up that, since there was no build at all to Jinder Mahal being a number one contender, pushing him into a main event, that there, something strange has been ha- happening. And the best I could look at it is that WWE looked at their WWE Network subscri- subscribers and said, holy shit, we have way more subscribers in India than we thought we had before, or at least that we even knew about. Let's cater to that audience, give them someone that they could identify with in their culture, in their country, and then see what happens. And maybe this could be the start of something bigger. Let's establish a star for the most populous country on the planet and see what happens. A huge market that they could get into and maybe do more live events there and maybe then develop other uh, wrestlers of Indian descent or directly from India. And I think that's what really was happening here on this decision to really push Jinder Mahal into the main event. But holy shit, was it done done awkwardly because there was no build-up. See, when you're telling stories... You have to establish threats, whether it's a villain in a story. That's always why when you watch like a, a any any movie with a villain or any movie with like a uh, a super villain, they show them doing bad things to people early on to show not just the motivation of the characters, but also to say, hey, this is a threat. This 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 person's bad news. Watch out for them. The problem with with Jinder Mahal is that they never did that before thrusting him into the main event. So. It never gave the fans an opportunity to, in quote-unquote the story, to take them seriously. But wrestling's fake. Yes, we all know it's fake. But there are logical storylines that wrestling fans look for and expect. If they don't think in the story, the same thing with the movie or TV show, if they don't think that the character is a real threat to the protagonist or the hero, they're going to be like, what the fuck are you doing? It would be like in the Amazing Spider-Man movie. That instead of Spider-Man facing like, I don't know, Electro, for example. They have, you know, a street mugger or car thief come out of almost nowhere and then fight Spider-Man for the last 20 minutes of the film and put up a good fight. You'd be in the movie theater like, what the fuck is this? I haven't seen this mugger before. I you know and now he's just coming and beating up Spider-Man with like the the purse he robbed from from the from the you know the woman the old woman on the street. It it would just 
it screws with your mind and your suspension of disbelief just vanishes. It implodes. And that's the problem with Jinder Mahal. So they go from a guy that wasn't taken seriously before ever, a guy who never won a real match of importance, to now being in the main event for the WWE Championship. So he faces Randy Orton. What was it? Payback? He faces him. And he beats him. Again, um, if you had established this guy as a credible threat before, beating some other superstar, some guys in the mid-card, maybe, you know, over the course of three, four months, you you put him in some tag matches where he shows he's somewhat competent in, in being a quote-unquote good wrestler and being a threat. If you did that over the course of like four, five, six months, instead of just one month and you just fucking throw it at us and shove it down our throats, I think we'd be more accepting of that. I think that would be something that the fans would be like, okay, this makes sense uh, to us in terms of the storyline. So he comes back. Um, oh, it's a backlash, not payback. A backlash. He defeats Randy Orton. Now it was with some interference where Orton's back was turned. He was fighting off uh, the two little assistants. Um, and he he defeats Randy Orton in the middle of the ring. One, two, three. With his finisher, uh, Cobra Clutch Slam. So where do you go from here? I don't know. But this establishes a weird precedent now. Now, since since WWE looked at the fact that, okay, we have a demographic here we should cater towards. Let's do that. Now, they threw away all the rules of wrestling, so to speak, in order to do this. Hot shot of the title onto someone that was never a threat before. And so now you're in a weird spot. Because what if now this becomes the modus operandi? Where, oh, okay, here's a, I don't know, all of a sudden we have a ton of people from South Africa that are into the WWE Network. Let's cater to that audience. We'll get a South African wrestler to come on board. We'll give him a major title just because. But you know what? They can get away with that. Because what's happening here with Jinder Mahal shows where their business is. Uh, live live events, yes, you make money there. Yes, you make money with uh, the, the, you know having it on TV, SmackDown, Raw. But they're looking at that nine ninety five a month for twelve months, one hundred twenty bucks a year coming from you know tens of millions of people. That's what they're looking at. That's what the WWE is afterwards, and that's the path they see with a strange to you and me move like this, putting the title on someone just because they're of Indian descent and they were never a threat before or taken seriously at all before. Hell, they cut away to people in the audience. Remember when they cut away to people being uh, of disbelief that The Undertaker lost to Brock Lesnar a couple years ago? They they cut the people laughing and like, oh my God, I can't believe they let a jobber win the WWE Championship. It's amazing that they did this, but this is just a symptom of the direction I think the business, and in particular in particular, the WWE has gone. We'll see how long they decide to keep the title on Jinder Mahal. Um, yes, it was the fact that Vince loves guys that are ripped, and Jinder Mahal did get ripped. He got shredded. He got like down to like freaking 5% body fat or something. I wish I was in that much of shape. But that's not enough to give a guy a championship. It was the huge demographic that, they, that the WWE thinks he represents. What's going to be funny, though, is that Maybe the fans in India don't necessarily like him just because he's of Indian descent. Maybe they just want a good character, and Jinder still has to develop, a, to me, a good character. 
And plus, he's a heel. So I don't know. I mean, it worked with Bret Hart when he was a heel Canadian, but he was also a face for many years before that. And sort of, you know, he still was pro-Canadian. You know, Jinder is, yeah, he's pro-India, but he's also, you know, slagging off America every chance he gets. I'm not sure if that appeals to, you know, someone in India necessarily, because he's not exactly coming across as a nice guy overall. I don't know. I'm just postulating. But that's where you're at. Jinder Mahal is your WWE champion. The 50th one, by the way. It's not shocking. It's not shocking at all that with the success of the NES Classic Edition, even though they Nintendo decided to pull out of the market, that others would follow suit with their own mini-systems. And good old At Games, was, who have been putting out you know, all-in-one Genesis handhelds and consoles for the past, I don't know, eight years at this point, they're going to do a uh, mini Sega Genesis slash Mega Drive. It's going to feature 85 games, 720p HDMI output with save states. So we've had the flashbacks before, though, for for years and years. Um, to variable quality. I wish Ian was here to talk about it. Uh, but, you know, you get what you pay for, usually when it comes to these all-in-ones. What I liked about the Nintendo one was that a, they had a cool, you know, user interface, they had a cool menu, and the quality build that what you would expect from Nintendo with the NES Classic Edition. With the At Game stuff, you know, they're licensing, At Games is making themselves, they're getting the license for the games from Sega, we know that. Uh, in terms of the quality of games, you know, they will vary. We, we speak about this at like twice a year of them announcing new stuff. Uh, here's the list of the games that will be included here. I'll run through most of these, and this doesn't include all of them. But you have Mortal Kombat 1, 2, and 3, uh, Virtual Fighter 2, Altered Beast, Golden Axe, Fantasy Star 4, Shadow Dancer, The Secret of Shinobi, Sonic and Knuckles, Sonic the Hedgehog, Alex Kidd, Enchanted Castle, Alien Storm, that's a good early title, Arrow Flash, Bonanza Brothers, Chakon, The Forever Man, Columns 1 and 2, Comic Zone, Crackdown, Decap Attack, Dr. Robotnik's Mean V Machine, Eswat, another early title, Eternal Champions, a good fighter, Fatal Labyrinth, early title, Flicky, Game Ground, Golden Axe 2 and 3, surprised not to see the first one there, Jewel Master, Kid Chameleon, Fantasy Star 2 and 3, Rystar, good title, Shinobi 3, Sonic Spinball, Sonic 2, Sonic 3D Blast, Sword of Vermilion, The Ooze, Vector Man 1 and 2, Virtual Fighter 2, Shining Force 1 and 2, Shining in the Darkness, Super Thunderblade. There's also non-Sega titles that we won't mention because they're going to be fucking awful and they're going to be like worse than you know mobile games from 2007. But even there you have roughly, let's see, 10, 20, 30, about 45 to 55 titles there that are all good quality. Those are all, for themselves, that would sell the console to me. Absolutely. Uh, according to this article in Nintendo Life, the At Games Mega Drive, the one out at the time, saw sales jump 400% in the run up to Christmas in the UK. Um, probably piggybacking off of the NES Classic Edition success. And people are like, you know what? I see this NES Classic Edition making news. What about all these other all-in-one consoles, right? Well, this new one's going to come out uh, in, in September. It's going to come with a pair of wireless uh, controllers. Looks like Bluetooth. A cartridge slot for original software. Oh, baby. That's what people wanted from the NES Classic Edition. You weren't going to get it. It's going to cost about... Uh, let's see, 80 euros, which is about $87. Wow, did the, did the dollar catch up to the euro and the pound? This is the time to go on vacation there. Uh, this is the best the dollar's ever been in terms of strength. Um, 
according to Sega nerds. Well, what's happening here? Uh, let's see. Tech Toy a Genesis, they're, they're talking about using original hardware, including built-in games, ability to play Genesis cartridges. That's the one me and Ian spoke about before. So the, you have the Tech Toy one, which is a different product, and this is the At Games one, which is in their line of other ones they put out before. They put out about, what, three or four in the past, uh, including the handheld one. So again, uh, this is coming out later in the year, in the fall. You can do a $10 limited time discount. Okay, the 80 euros is for a limited time discount, and they'll begin shipping September 15th. You can pre-order it now. Um, uh, even yeah, even SegaNerds.com says, uh, we know that At Games' pre- previous efforts in manufacturing a Genesis clone uh, left a lot to be desired, their words, especially in the sound department. Uh, yeah, Ian could attest, uh, attest to that, that the sound was always bad. So the jury is still out whether or not the system is worth your investment. So you have a combination of uh, you know, hardware to play, you know, your original games if you have them, original being, you know, old old games, or you're going to have the built-in ones which will be built off some sort of emulation. The non-Sega games, we spoke about this before in the past, stuff like this, um, you know, Air Hockey, Bomber, Checker, not Checkers, Checker, only, you only get one Checker that you, you move around diagonally, Hangman, Flash Memory, Hidden Agenda, Curling 2010, Maze 2010, from that historic line. Naval Power, which would probably be a Battleship clone. Spider Snake, Wacko Wolf, and 30 other games that you'll never play if you order this system. There you go. Trying to cash on in on the NES Classic Edition. I don't blame At Games at all for this, uh, for doing this. Uh, the Mini Mega Drive. It just remains to be seen. What's the quality going to be in terms of the emulation, uh, especially with the sound? Here to talk about Loot Crate. Proud sponsor of the CU podcast. Um, great stuff. Exclusive items in every crate every month. So you're going to go to lootcrate.com slash pat, enter code pat, to save 10% on any new subscription. June's crate is Alter Ego. Alter Ego is going to have stuff from Spider-Man, Transformers, The Hulk, and DC Comics. I'm a huge Spider-Man fan, so I'm I'm very interested in what that's going to be. Hopefully, the T-shirt I could use a new Spider-Man T-shirt. Uh, love Transformers. I love GI Joe more, but Transformers, the Hulk is, is great, and DC. You know, I mean, you know, we get on the DC movies, but we're, we're fans of DC overall. So you have until June 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and get the June crate of Alter Ego. After that cutoff, cutoff happens, it's it's over. But they also have the, you know, you can go out the Loot Crate DX, which is the bigger one. There's also Loot Pets, so you want a crate for your pet. You know, there's toys and stuff in there uh, for your pets. But there's also the one I'm holding right now, there's the Gaming Crate. Uh, so, from the last month, you had uh, cute little Halo Icons uh, figures here. That was That's a Loot Crate exclusive. Almost everything's a Loot Crate exclusive nowadays, it seems like. Like most of it, it went from like there being like one or two items to most of them now are. Uh, a Luke Gaming exclusive Overwatch figure, Titanium Pharaoh. If you're a fan of that, that first person uh, shooter series, I should really get into that. You have a t shirt that was in Luke Gaming. It was uh, DC Injustice 2, the fighting game featuring DC characters that just came out. You got that. That's a nice t shirt there. Uh, Frank might want to uh, wear that because, well, there's Batman on there, and there's also Harley Quinn. He's kind of a fan of. He doesn't like Superman though that much. <laughs> and finally, my favorite item from the uh, the May uh, Luke Gaming, you had the 
the Coon from Coon and Friends, South Park. You had the bandana here from Coon and Friends uh, from the upcoming uh, South Park Fractured But Whole uh, game, the sequel to Stick of Truth, the RPG. So that's that's Loot Crate. You know them. You love them. It's your monthly deliverable geek crate of goodies. Treat yourself. Treat a, treat a friend. Treat a loved one. You know, treat a, treat your, your, your grandma if she's into geek and nerd items. Again, go to lootcrate.com slash pat, enter code pat, to save 10% on any new subscription to either the regular Loot Crate, the gaming crate, or if you want to go for that that uh, big, big-ass crate. And there's also a chance to win the mega crate that they give away uh, every month as well. And you got Dollar Shave Club. You know what, guys? You, guys, you shave. You know, women, you shave two body parts. You know, well, guys can shave body parts, too. I never got into it. I know some of my friends that, you know, shave chests and have shaved their legs. That's all the conversation for another time. Maybe that's a, a not-so-common podcast discussion. Point. But um, Dollar Shave Club, it's in the name. It's, uh, it's dollars uh, for a good shave. So this offer is for any of the ones at dollarshaveclub.com slash pat. You go there, and you can get one of the few uh, shavers there. Uh, I have the executive razor here. It, it's a it's a good shave. So it's a dollar. It's a dollar with free shipping for your blade and uh, the number of cartridges. This one had four. So there's no risk involved. There's no commitment. You can cancel any time. So go to dollarshaveclub.com slash pat. Sign up for one of the razors there. Um, get it in the mail. See if it works for you. You know, see if you like it. Worst case scenario, you can cancel. Worst case scenario, you get a high quality razor for only a buck with some car for, with some cartridges. That's the worst case right there. If not, you 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 know you can stay on and continue the, your subscription for a, a low cost, depending on how what you get. But that that's the deal. Dollar Shave Club. Check them out. dollarshaveclubcom slash pat. Get your shave on, baby. What? Bear with me here. I wish I had eaten on for this topic. Coleco, which is Coleco Holdings LLC, which is really a subsidiary of River West uh, Branding. River West Branding, which is a company that goes out. River, excuse me, River West Brands, a company that goes out and and buys dormant trademarks that are either gone that no one's. Uh, filed a re-upped on or they acquire ones that exist River West, River West Brands that's what they do they do brand acquisition which at that point then they license out that brand slash trademark slash name uh, if you're not familiar with trademarks what's a trademark? it's not a copyright copyrights for intellectual property such as a movie, a game, a book it's for something that exists in terms of uh, entertainment or um, you know an actual Something that, you know, a creative endeavor, we'll just say that. That's copyright. A song. Uh, a patent is for a, an actual product. How, how something's constructed, what something actually does. You can make a patent on the fucking shoelace. The person probably patented that originally. And for a time, no one else could make the shoelace without a license from him. Or, I don't know, a, a certain brand of windshield wipers. If it's different from the rest, you can patent that. My grandfather once patented a type of squeegee, I believe, or something. Never did something with it, but he came up with, came up with his own spin on it. That's a patent. What a trademark is, is a name 
or a logo or a picture that is used in con- in conjunction with a product or with a brand or with a company. That's a trademark. The most simplistic of the of the trilogy of I guess property that you could, you know, uh get a right rights to use. So trademarks have to be re-upped um for for specific uses again uh, usually with a company or with a brand or with a product. That's usually what trademarks are used for or for a website. So that's what River West Brands LLC does. So with the whole Coleco Chameleon debacle when that happened, Mike Kennedy thought, I'm going to take the retro uh, retro VGS and rebrand it with Coleco's permission to get the license to make it the Coleco Chameleon. Coleco, the actual company, hasn't existed for at least 20 years. They went out of business. That company, you you the, the good old Connecticut Leather Company, founded in... Uh, what is it? 1932 in New Jersey, excuse me, in Connecticut, headquartered in Manalpin, New Jersey, who produced the Caligo Chameleon. Excuse me, they didn't produce the Chameleon. God damn it, Chameleon, you're out of my mind. Uh, they produced the real system, the ColecoVision, the Adam computer, and probably the most famous product of all, Cabbage Patch Kids. Uh, they were big. They, they disappeared in the late 80s. And then the brand was revived in 2005, and now it's held by Coleco Holdings, LLC, which was created under River, River West Brands. So, in terms of the Coleco Chameleon, before I get into the meat of the story, what probably happened was Mike Kennedy probably had some sort of license deal with them, uh, some sort of royalty, where for, I don't know, every every Coleco Chameleon system that was sold, you know, maybe they kicked back, you know, three, four, five, ten dollars to Coleco Holdings, and that's how they made their money there. I don't think it was an upfront deal there. Uh, Ian and I gave Coleco Holdings the huge benefit of the doubt when it came to this. We thought they got suckered in uh, by Mike Kennedy. They didn't know that Mike Kennedy really had nothing to offer and was trying to get on, by, get on with smoke and mirrors just to complete a Kickstarter successfully and did whatever he could to get to that Kickstarter and was hoping to get the seed money uh, by hook or by crook, which is what he did or attempted to. So we think that Coleco at that point was just like, okay, we'll just we'll just license you uh, this out, not knowing the fucking disaster it was going to be. But it did show bad judgment by Coleco Holdings to do that. If you're gonna spend money to buy a, a dormant trademark that hadn't been important for 20 years in order to license it out to make I don't know to make mini tabletop. I don't know if someone's, you know, it's been licensed out for, you know, the, you know, you know how Act Games does it, the Sega Genesis all-in-ones. There has been an all-in-one Coleco, uh, uh, Coleco Vision that has come out. So that's smart to do that. It's smart to, you know, call it whatever you want, squatting on a trademark. But if no one's bought the rights to it or, or done it, do it yourself, uh, register it, and then if people come to you, be like, okay, yeah, I'll let you uh, make, I'll make you, I'll let you pr- do the hard work, the actual work of producing a product like like a mini a mini arcade or a new ColecoVision or a new product. You do the work and you just pay me for the rights to use a good old ColecoVision uh, name or Coleco logo and slap it on your product, which is what basically what Coleco Holdings exists uh, now. They're not making their own products. Unfortunately, it blew up in their face. Um, and oh boy, did it blow up in their face with Mike Kennedy. So I spoke to the one person that was trying to partner with with uh, Mike Kennedy, Chris Cardillo, who was sort of, the, I guess, the front man for River West when it comes to Coleco Holdings. And um, 
I guess uh, by throwing Kennedy under the bus, as soon as it appeared uh, with the DVR capture card at good old Toy Bear, it's been over a year already, that this was a hoax, that they separated themselves and said, what the fuck's going on? Uh, Chris kept his job. I spoke to Chris. I'll tell you about my interaction with Chris at, um, what was it, Game On Expo. Uh, that's, uh, that's the one, that's the one that Gamester 81 puts on in, uh, Arizona, the convention. I'll be returning to that. It was a fun convention, but Chris approached me there and I had no ill will towards Chris, uh, Cardillo. I don't think he had any ill will towards me. And I even said to him, what was interesting about the interaction with, with Chris, I made it a point at the time to say to Chris in person, to his face that I don't think you knew what was going on with Mike. I think you were not aware of it. Um, and you just got caught off, caught off, caught up with a bad actor. I said that to him. What was strange at the time, though, was that Chris didn't acknowledge what I said. He didn't shake his head yes. He didn't shake his head no. He didn't. He didn't acknowledge that. Yeah, you're right. It was a bad deal. Uh, he didn't respond at all to that. Which at the time I thought was okay. Maybe he felt embarrassed by it. But I don't know. I, I, I'm hoping that's all it was. And I brought it up again at the end of our conversation because I think he was going to invite me out to the. Uh, they're doing a Coleco convention in Edison, New Jersey. Uh, so he, I think he invited me out to it last year. It's going to be. I think it's, it's later on in the year. I, I have no interest in going by way because it doesn't look like a good show. That's but that's a whole other issue for me talking to Chris. But uh, but he, when I mentioned uh, the Coleco chameleon again at the end. Uh, again, stone faced, poker face, didn't mention anything about it. Didn't really think much about it until now. Because now, Coleco Holdings, excuse me, and then Chris Cardillo are now involved with something else. So right now, they are strong arming a Facebook fan page based upon trademark infringement of Coleco and ColecoVision. It's very strange what's going on. They're trying to shut down and get into trouble a Facebook fan group of ColecoVision, a fan group called ColecoVision Fan. They submitted uh, several trademark infringement DMCA, which are Digital Millennium Copyright Act takedown notifications from Facebook by Coleco Holdings which again is River West Brands, Coleco underneath them. Uh, due, to, due to them posting photos and videos of ColecoVision homebrew games that are published on the page. This is a little confusing now. So basically what's been going on is they're in the homebrew scene for you know the last at least 15 years, there have been homebrew developers making ColecoVision games. And some of them have been releasing you know their own, their own releases, uh, with boxes, uh, box art, and then using the ColecoVision logo uh, and font, because you know this is this is for ColecoVision. Why wouldn't they do that? And and no one at the time really cared. You know, it's sort of a dead brand. Um, so they're deciding to act on it and try to shut down the fan page. But the issue is that, to me at least, a fan page you can you can debate the rights or wrongs of trying to enforce your trademark, and infringement thereof. You you acquired the rights to, it, rights to it, you legally have the rights, that's fine. But a fan page in and of itself isn't infringing on trademark. A fan page um, 
it's not like they're the ones producing the software, or I can understand if they were trying to sell software with trademarks that were owned by someone else. They're just posting pictures on there, right? So it would be like Nintendo coming after a website, reporting on, you know, we always talk about Nintendo going after these homebrew games, like uh, the Pokemon games that people make, or the, the, the sequel, um, you know, the Super Metroid sequel that was made where you know that it's copyright infringement, right? Where it's like, okay, this is weird. But it would be like if Nintendo not only went after the people making the games, which would be the right, but what if they went after a Facebook group or a website reporting or talking about the game itself? Not even saying offering that game for download, which would be uh, illegal, but just talking about it and showing a picture of the game. What if Nintendo slapped them with a infringement notice? They would, be, they would not be in their rights to do that. Uh, legally, just reporting on it and talking about it. And that's what's going on here. I think what what, what happened here, unfortunately, and I'm going to the ColecoVision fan page now, which has almost 27,000 likes, by the way. So, so this is keeping ColecoVision alive, I think, in the hearts and minds of many. This is a console that for its time was uh, fairly popular, but still lost out to other consoles at the time. Like of especially like the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, so it's not like the most fondly remembered console in terms of popularity. But I love the I love the ColecoVision. It's my it's my most favorite console from that era, from that quote unquote first generation of games, if you want to call that one and a half generations. But um, they're just posting videos and pictures. So I think what happened here was. Riverwest Brands slash Coleco Holdings and then Chris Cardillo, who I, I, I don't know if he's the enforcer here. Sounds like he is. I'm gonna, I'm, I can't make the full assumption, but it sounds like he could be involved with some of the communications here. He he is going after this fan page, I think, because he's afraid of the Coleco and ColecoVision trademarks being associated with uh, games they don't want to represent their brand and especially re-releases of games that are using other copyrighted um, games that are already copyrighted, if that makes sense. So, this is a situation where I think um, Coleco Holdings is starting from a place of I have the right to enforce my trademark for ColecoVision and Coleco, which they absolutely do, but they are applying it incorrectly. And they're they're overstepping their, their bounds, going after a Facebook fan page. To me, it, that's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, uh, thankfully, Coleco Holdings failed to shut down the fan page. They don't have the legal right to do that, and I think Facebook would probably agree with them about that. I think what Coleco Holdings should be doing is apologizing to this fan page. And then going after the real perpetrators, you want to go after the home brewers that are selling products using uh, the Coleco or ColecoVision logo. I am all for that. If you want to enforce your trademark to do that, go for it. If you want to force them to do a generic, like, works on ColecoVision and getting rid of the ColecoVision rainbow logo and that font, go for it. But don't go after a popular fan page that is helping keep alive the 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 system, and it's helping keep a lot keep alive the name that is associated 
with the trademark that you own, that you picked up off the scrap heap that has been relevant since the late 80s. You should be working with the fan page because their success is your success. If they promote uh, ColecoVision, they help your uh, dormant brand be relevant again. And it may never ever be really that relevant again because it was destroyed with the Click of Chameleon. That's another argument for another time. But the fact of the matter is, there is still a market, not a big one, for ColecoVision. There is a homebrew scene. Again, not a big one, but there is money to be made. Hell, I think the most money, to, to me personally, you get someone, to, and I commented uh, Chris Cardillo on this, those tabletop, you get LED tabletop reproductions, and I got them here. Get Frogger out there again. If you can get the rights from, you know, from, uh, from I think Konami owns the right to Frogger now. Yeah. Get them, you know, get like Donkey Kong, if you can get the rights from Nintendo to make a Donkey Kong one. I don't see that happening, by the way. But just trying to do that. Make those tabletops again. Slap Coleco on there since they made the originals. I love those those tabletops. Do that. Make an all-in-one uh, console. Have someone make it and then have your name slapped on there. That's fine. Do that. That's how you should be spending your time. Um, going if you want to go after the homebrew developers, yeah, I can see that. If if it, if it's if they're putting out a porno game and slapping you slapping your your trademark on there, if you don't like that, yeah, I can see that. But don't go after the fan group because they they're not producing the product. They have nothing to do with it. It's just a weird situation. Uh, I can understand Clico Holdings if you're upset about if someone's putting out um, games that they don't own. I'm looking on Atari Age right now, who, who recapping what's been going on there, and, and I think Chris Cardillo of, of Clickle Holdings responded there, and it's, it's back and forth. If someone puts out a game that they don't own the the IP of, like Bosconian, for example, and doing a ClickoVision version of that, or we or doing, oh, let's see, I see a picture of Operation Wolf, Twin B, uh, someone's uh, re-released a Zaxxon game, Mappy, Goonies, Dragon's Lair version, Rally X, uh, Super Pac-Man. Those homebrewers absolutely have no rights to either the trademark to those games or movies, and they absolutely have no right to the IP itself to put those out. And you should be upset if you are being associated with, with those games and you have your trademark slapped on those boxes. Go after those homebrewers. Put the pressure on them. Work with, instead of fi- instead of filing, you know, filing a DMCA takedown, why don't you work with the people running the Coleco uh, Vision fan page. Work with them. Say, hey, listen, this is a situation. Can you work with me not to promote this this garbage? Do that, but don't overstep your bounds and, tr- and try to get the fucking page shut down. Because it makes you look like an asshole. And after the Coleco Chameleon debacle, you need all the help from the community that you can get. And the benefit of the doubt that many, 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 many in the community gave Coleco Holdings and Riverwest Brands for getting into bed with the slimeball Mike Kennedy, and we gave you the benefit of the doubt with that. Now, we might start to question ourselves and maybe thinking that either you knew more than you did or that, or you were just really fucking stupid in giving Mike Kennedy the keys to the kingdom when it comes to your brand, when it came to Coleco and ColecoVision. Um... So try to repair the damage to the community that really is promoting your brand 
and has been keeping it alive for the past 20 years. Because without those people, the brand that you picked up off the fucking scrap heap would be worthless. Let's check in with my buddy. Kinda, Ian. Hello. Hey, Ian, what's going on? Not much. I'm just lying here. Are you, are you podcasting? I'm doing my best to, to record a cast. To pot a cast. It's almost like throwing a reel into the water. Like a fishing rod reel. They don't, well, you don't throw the reel, you throw the line in, right? I, I haven't fished since I was four years old. I caught a, I think I caught a, a flounder and felt sad. Oh, yeah, there's nothing... I like the idea of fishing when it's, um, you know, sitting by the water drinking a beer. Um, but that's about as far as I go. I'll hold the pole, even. Uh, someone, I just don't want to unhook anything. I some, don't want to catch anything. Someone isolate that. Ian likes to hold the pole. Can we isolate that? <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're going to miss great topics like uh, the Venom solo movie. Which, if I'm not tired, I will get to that seemingly disaster. But, um, no, it'll probably be decent because of Tom Hardy. But anyway, we'll talk about it right now. Ian, what do you think about there being a Venom solo movie that has no connection to the Marvel uh, Universe? The Marvel (laughs) Comics Universe, movie universe. Uh, I think think the choice of actors is pretty solid, actually. But, um, I mean, I've never been a huge fan of Venom. And, uh, I, I mean, the fact that it has no connection to the MCU, um, you know, puts it squarely back in the dregs of trash, like, uh, uh, Fantastic Four, you know, type movies and stuff like that. I mean, I don't know, right? Venom just seems so 90s to me, and, uh... He's dark! Yeah, he's very, he's very 90s, I don't know, dark. Well, well, here's the thing. Uh, here's the deal. Remember back when we talked about before before the the great triumphant deal that Marvel did with Sony to bring Spider-Man into these movies, these MCU movies, that they had planned like uh, not just an Amazing Spider-Man three. There was going to be a Sinister Six movie, a Spider Gwen movie. They're going to do an Ant Man movie and a Venom movie. They wanted to do a whole cinematic universe just around Spider-Man, which is one of the dumbest yeah. things I think you could do uh, when it's like, oh, we have. Like a Sinister Six movie would have made thirty five dollars at the box office. No one would have seen that movie, and that was half yeah. of that was half of Amazing Spider Man Two was them showing um, at Oscorp. Well, there's the there's the Doctor Octopus arms, and there's the Vulture wings. You know, like it was it was ridiculous. Like they were trying to shoehorn in the fact that everything came from Oscorp, like most of the Sinister Six, and then of course Lizard did as well. You know, in the first movie, so it it was just insane. Oh yeah, and Rhino, they're probably gonna throw in there because he was at the end of Maze. Maze Spider-Man Two sucked dick. I think is what what it all comes down to. Anyway, how you feeling <laughs> otherwise? <laughs> I feel like shit, but uh, whoops. Um, I I, uh, I I smoked um the last of my Miracle Johnson, and I'll have a little bit more later. It's not really. So just to recap, you like to hold pole and you smoke Johnson. Is that that's <laughs> miracle Johnsons only? I, okay. I, I, I do have to say without without spoilers, um, I had bought tickets in advance like last Friday or something like that. Anyways, uh, Vani and I had planned to go see 
Alien Covenant. I think we did it Sunday night. And um, without spoiling anything for you, because you haven't seen it, and maybe you won't, but it's really not a bad movie. Um, I yeah. was surprised. It's actually quite decent. I think all the reviews basically say, yeah, it's good, but we've seen this story like five times before. I mean, that's basically what I was saying. It's like, yeah, it's competently made, but it doesn't really go in a new direction with the franchise, you know? Um, I, I would disagree in some areas. The first act is very much, we've been here before. The second act turns into like, almost like this goth fantasy movie for a small portion. It's, it's very interesting. And uh, Ridley Scott's directing is is very good, and the end the end does a good sense of creating dread. Although I think it's it, it's telegraphed probably intentionally. Could set up though if 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 it if it goes in the direction I think it's going. I, I think it sets up for a, a very. I think the way it will finally connect itself to the mainstream Alien universe is interesting. I'm just, um, I'm just upset that this is all meant the death of Alien Five because I was really looking forward to that because that looked like it's going to be nuts, you know. It did, and I, I, I was interested in it too, and I wanted to see it. But I mean, you can be the the fan that doesn't try the new thing at all and doesn't get to see any part of the universe or you take a chance and see what it was and it wasn't bad I really sure. wanted obviously I desperately wanted Alien 5 desperately but there was no guarantee that that was going to be good either I mean you, you never know until you see it obviously but well it's always it's always good to try to right the wrong of a previous previously bad decision which in this case was both Alien 3 and Alien 4 which I thought saw in theaters you know, it's like, well, let's give him a good send off. Get Michael BM back in there. He needs some work, right? And you know, maybe get right. maybe get like a grown up Newt in there. That could be an interesting story to tell because she would be like in her, you know, thirties. You know what I mean? Like, it's an interesting idea. Um, it, it, on paper, it would have been an interesting way to continue the series too. You could have passed the torch to Newt. The sure. problem with I think the, the prequel Prometheus stuff is, is um, like I said, I, I I have a feeling, and I'm hoping that what the end of Covenant is leading to is a very interesting part three that could, um, like I said, I'm not going to say much, but could, could the, that could very much connect to Alien in a very interesting way, but it stops there. It doesn't, it's not going to progress things on me. So, so you, you see maybe one more movie in, in this trilogy and that's it, and they're going to have to do something else with the Alien franchise. There's only so much you can do with a prequel trilogy. You've got to stop it somewhere. Sure. So maybe at that point, in, co- mean, in a couple of years, they'll do. Spoiler! It, it, it's right on the cover. It's right on the movie poster or the original teaser shot. The actual movie poster is really cool looking. But um, I mean, you see basically the full. I mean, you, you're there's a full xenomorph in the movie. Sure. Well, yeah, it was in the trailer, so that's not a shot to anyone. There's a xenomorph at the end of Prometheus, basically a pro a proto. Xenomorph, more, but one one. Yeah, never, no, you get you what. get a you get a classic xenomorph in this movie. I think so. it's always it's always more exciting to have just the one they have to deal with versus shooting up a, a billion of them. You know, I love aliens. I mean, it's a, it's a totally different tone of the movie when you know you're so underpowered, by, and you have to deal with just one. It's more of a classic monster horror movie, you know, that you have to deal with versus you know shooting up like fifty of them because you have these, like these awesome machine guns and flamethrowers. You know, I. 
it's just a different sort of feel. I think that's one of the most interesting things about this movie is despite the fact that I don't like some of the CGI is um, there's not a lot of quote-unquote monsters, but you do get to see a couple interesting interpretations briefly. So, okay. anyway, I think that's about all I got, man. But All right, you don't want to talk about the Zelda mobile game that was announced. All right. <laughs> I, I don't know how the fuck they're going to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking for the Zelda mobile game that was announced with details coming in 2000. It's going to come out in 2018. I, I think they can go in, in a couple of different directions, uh, but I think you're going to get probably something closer to like the Hyrule Tower Defense game. You know, it's going to be like, like fend off the wa- waves of, uh, Moblins and, and, you know, uh, Octoroks and Tektites and, you know, something like that where it's going to build off a, like, what, what you know, a popular genre that already exists on mobile, but we'll just infuse it with like Legend of Zelda themes and characters, and I think that's probably the safest way to go. And it'll sell a billion; like people will buy it just because it's Legend of Zelda. You know, I, I think it'll be fine. Sure, um, and they did have two, you know, fairly successful um, portable Zeldas that were based on Touch. I actually never played them, so I can't say much about them. But it's it's not like they can't do it. I just, uh, I really don't know how it's going to um, make that transition effectively. I uh, I think I think the announced Animal Crossing game is something that's going to be uh, far more at home on, um, on mobile. Well, sure, because you have already like a, a genre that's semi-connected to that, you know, of games. So right. It's almost like it was stolen from Animal Crossing, now they're going to retrieve it. You know, you know, like how many how many people used to play like fucking Farmville on Facebook? Is that still a thing, Farmville? I, I have no idea, but I mean, I, yeah, I remember all that shit. But you see what I mean? It's like okay, Nintendo wants back in. They want they want to rec- reclaim the throne. Of that. <laughs> Give Animal Crossing a bit more credit than that, but yeah, I mean, obviously, it will it would appear to. Uh, uh, It'll appeal to everyone who those types of games appealed to in the first place, including those who may not have been around to play them and uh, you know the first time around. So, so that's that's on that's on target for this fiscal year, which means before end of March, two thousand eighteen, that'll come out, and then you're gonna probably get Zelda later in the year. Um, so that'll be interesting. Originally, it was supposed to be fall two thousand sixteen Animal Crossing. So that, wow, they pushed it back a while. Okay. So yeah, I think you're gonna you're gonna have the, the you know two a year. Nintendo will have to be careful, obviously very careful. But they're they're not gonna do something that they could do on a console on a freaking mobile phone. They're not gonna do that. Like it's not like anything they put out. It's not like the Zelda game they're gonna put out on the iPhone is gonna gonna cannibalize Breath of the Wild sales. You know, it's just not. It's different markets. I, you know, it's right. not. They're not gonna be dumb enough to do that. I could see them doing something more full-featured and interesting, say, with Animal Crossing, like a more full-featured, more interesting... um, This is what I predict for the Animal Crossing one. They announced an Animal Crossing at E3 or at some point this year. Um, The Animal Crossing app is timed to come out somewhere alongside it. It's probably like a more full-featured Mitomo, and it ties in with the game so that it gives people more of a reason to go back to the iPhone um, game. 
I would imagine that the console game will be the fleshed out game without in-app purchases, and then I imagine that the app will let you do stupid things, and of course will probably be in-app purchases in that. I bet they'll make it tie in. I think if Nintendo's smart, they'll find a way to make their mobile races <laughs> make their mobile releases tie in to um, not all, but some of their console games because I think that'll keep people coming back. Their, their games have had really strong mobile launches, but not very strong play retention. Um, if you look at stuff like Mitomo, Super Mario Run, and Pokemon Go, Pokemon Go is probably the one that's still going the strongest. There's there's still dedicated players, not nearly as many as there were. Um, but the other two, you know, people played for you know a month and then stopped using completely. Well, Super Mario Run has had a limited shelf life, right? So you, you once you complete all the worlds. Yes, you can do the um, what is it, the, the Toad Race, whatever the hell it's called. But but that's really limited. And they even said that yeah, we're not going to come out with any DLC for that from the start. So it was what it was: one package, ten dollars, and that's it. Um, what did it gross? I think it only grossed a hundred and seventy-five million Super Mario Run overall to this point, which is not that much for the you know the most recognizable uh, you know well, game mascot. Right. And I think that's the problem. <sighs> They could have kept it going if if it had sold. Uh, I don't know. I'm losing my my train of thought here. That could have been handled, but it didn't sell well enough, and that's why I didn't get the DLC. They could have kept that game going. Um, there just wasn't, I don't think, enough interest. Uh, like I said, they need to find a way to hold people's interest, and I, I think tying those games in somehow to releases would potentially make people more interested and no I, I don't know how they would have tied you know Super Mario Run into anything but now they have a chance going forward with a new system that they can kind of time these to tie in with certain releases and maybe make them you know more worthwhile for people to go back to I have a thought I have a thought what you think they'll tie in the Legend of Zelda app purchase to unlock something in Breath of the Wild you think they'll yeah, do course. something like that yeah but that's what I'm saying. You know, you can unlock things in the main game or unlock things in the mobile game. That, that's what I'm trying to say. Or they just give you, like, a little outfit and a couple of apples and a sword. They'll treat it like an amiibo, which is another topic sure. that's out there. Like, like I mean, they might do something like that. Well, they'll, 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 you'll just sync it up to your Nintendo account like you do with Super Mario Run. They'll be like, oh, when you open the game up, maybe there'll be a little mini quest for you to do. You know, if the game... A mini quest, or you'll get a special item, or, you know, when you link it up, you'll get a coins or some bullshit in the mobile app but I, I mean even that sort of little bit of incentive will, will, would keep people going back if it was something they could do daily like say use their amiibos in Zelda. Yeah because if they do an amiibo price which is like 10 bucks right people can say like okay well I'm getting a feature like that but then again there's I'm not, I can actually play a game on top of that so it, it, it's more value if Nintendo wants to keep with this sort of nine ninety nine app price. So from that perspective, it's almost like a win-win. It's almost like, okay, maybe it's good they established that price early on with Super Mario Run, so they'll have their $20 DLC, but then you have a $10, you know, maybe it could be mini DLC with, alongside an actual game you can play while you're on the crapper. So, speaking, speaking of crapper, how, how are you feeling so everyone has an update on your on your condition here? Um, it's been a lot worse the past 
past two to three weeks. Uh, work's been really hard. Um, I'm trying to stay, you know, positive. Um, I appreciate all the people who have told me that I've looked better on the recent podcasts that I've been on. I've really been pushing to, you know, try to put out a, a better outward appearance. Um, this week has just really not been good. And, uh, I, I can't look good at work. I can't look good on air. I can't really talk. Um, well, you're talking now. Really well. I can't really talk well. <laughs> and, uh, I, I've kind of overexerted it right now. But I, uh, I, I contacted the doctor with a long, stern letter. Um, sent him, uh, in addition to the letter, uh, a bunch of peer reviewed, uh, science journal studies, um, including ones from government web pages. And, uh, I, I, he just sent me a very quick reply this morning that said, we'll arrange follow up quickly. Um, so basically I just have to wait for, uh, Kaiser Permanente. For those who don't know, it's kind of a interesting, weird insurance umbrella. Um, you basically, go to their facilities, which are medium-sized to large-sized, almost hospital-sized buildings. And there are hospitals where um, basically all of their doctors are in-house. It's like mall medicine. Um, <laughs> so th- they will call me and they will set me up with another appointment. Um, I'm pushing heavily for the, um, the steroid injections, which... Uh, as far as research shows, aren't permanent and don't work for everyone. But if they do work for me, I could be looking at up to 10 months of reduced pain, which would at least allow me to get on most of my life for a while. And then, you know, we can see about repeating that procedure. Sure. Any thoughts on the uh, all the Amiibo NFC cards being sold for Breath of the Wild? I'm stretching I was, it. <laughs> I, was, I was, I was the one who posted that, uh, put that topic up there, and I, I, I think it's, I think it's fine. Um, you know, there's certain things that only, you know, those certain amiibos can give you. Like, I think it's the Smash Brothers uh, Link um, is the only one that can give you um, Epona in yes. Breath of the Wild. And uh, it's an incredibly hard figure to find now, even though it used to be everywhere. You know, um, at the time that I posted that article, I think I saw it on eBay going for about 50. Nintendo doesn't print them anymore. I don't even think they were making them at the time that Breath of the Wild came out. You know, people obviously want Epona, so... Well, well, it's interesting, because this is still... It's still copyrighted software. So it's it's it's, yeah. it's it's not legal to do to sell this. It's not legal to actually actually create your own if you want to get technical uh, for use. No, it's not. But in, in, in this instance, I don't care. So people are Maybe selling because... people are selling sets of cards if you want to do it yourself. NFC PVC cards. If I go on eBay right now, it's it, they're basically a dollar each at ten, and if you get like a fucking yep. hundred of them, they're less than a dollar. So people yep. are are either get they're either getting them themselves. And I guess you can you can do this through what you can do it through. I, I saw someone said you can do do, do it through software on a freaking Wii U. You could somehow do it. You could you could yeah. uh, put the codes on here. Um, 
and then people are reselling the individual ones, which is basically you're just paying for you're basically paying for the service of someone doing it at that point. I've seen I've seen them as cheap as like someone charging like two to three bucks for one of these things, which is uh, you know a markup on profit right there. Um, I think it's fine. I, I, I you know DLC is one thing as long as it's you know available, but this is DLC that is stuck in a physical object that they refuse to make and um, as long as they're not making them I, I, I think that sort of withholding structure um, well is it necessarily withholding that, structure that, or the that, fact that they may have not have foreseen that people would want to go back and get two year old amiibo right and so it's, it's like a bonus well you know we, everything that, that existed at Zelda we'll make sure if people already own it we'll put it in as a bonus because, you know, you don't need all these extra weapons or opponent in order to beat the game or even have a good time. The wolf is pretty freaking cool, though. If you get the wolf, I have to admit that. That's pretty freaking cool. But it, they're, they're all, to me, bonuses. Okay, here's the best one I saw where it's, okay, it's 20 bucks uh, with free shipping to get the 18-piece set, I guess, uh, at this point. But what Nintendo's also concerned about, though, is that uh, people have pulled out the codes for the unreleased Amiibo and are, and are selling them. They've analyzed the game and are and they've discovered that uh yeah what's what's the three one here we go uh Majora's Mask Link Skyward Sword Link and Twilight Princess Link all right these aren't coming out I think to what June and people are already exploiting the game to get to get this stuff up front so that in theory is costing Nintendo money it's not just, not just at that point well you know, you know boohoo big company Nintendo you know they're not making money on this so screw them. You know, this is this is future stuff that's being pirated. This is like a strange, unmarked territory, I guess, when it comes to this stuff. Well, obviously, there's no way to to make this happen. But I mean, in a perfect world, I mean, basically, I'm totally fine with if Nintendo's not printing anymore, if they're not making any more, say, Smash Zelda or Smash. Uh, to actually, well, Smash Zelda unlock something too. But if they're not making any more Smash Link, uh, I have no problem with people not wanting to pay seventy dollars on the secondhand market and just swiping a card across so they can get uh, a, a bonus. Um, obviously, I don't particularly like the idea of, on the other hand, of of people, you know, ripping out stuff that hasn't even been released yet. But it, you know, it goes back to some sort of frustration. Um, with Nintendo supply and demand, sometimes I very much understand it and it pisses people off where I think I understood it more than others or had a very not popular take on the NES Classic. But in this instance, you've already put something in the game that you know so many people can't get. Sure. And I, I think that's what drives people nuts. I think I think it's due to the fact that for some of these items, the stuff is super cool. Like like you get the wolf, yeah. you get Epona, which is like what the best horse in the game that you can get. It's all powered up. You, Otherwise, you're, you, you're putting iconic. It's not just like very powerful new weapons that you can only get with it. Or it's it's you're putting iconic characters from the Legend of Zelda and things that are iconic to Link that you have no chance of getting unless you own this piece. If they made it easier to get, but it wasn't impossible to get in-game, I'd be fine with that, even if you had to bust your ass to get it. But to make it impossible to get without 
Amiibos. I, 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 yeah, that I'm not crazy about. Sure. Uh, Ian, did you see the ARMS Nintendo Direct? <laughs> okay, no. We're done. And no, we're done the ARMS Nintendo Direct. So, All right. I'll, I'll talk uh, about that. <laughs> All right. Bye, buddy. Bye. There goes Ian. I try to segue into another topic. Couldn't get him to do that. But I will talk about ARMS Nintendo Direct. I will do that. Time to talk about a documentary relating to a couple of subjects that I love. Uh, physical retro game stores and also game preservation. It's an, Indiego- an Indiegogo campaign called Not for Resale. Uh, there's a $12,000 flex goal. There's about a month left by the time I record this. There's about a month left. It's going to need some help. Um, directed by Kevin James. There's a four-minute trailer. And they are going around talking to People that own retro game stores and some of the bigger ones, uh, including my favorite one, the one I, the one that I, I love, uh, which is Digital Press in New Jersey. But they're also speaking to some other big ones out there. Uh, East Starland, uh, outside of D.C., is one, uh, for example, that they plan uh, to visit and or go back to. I actually spoke to Kevin, who's the director, who's been filming this and trying to get the funds to film more of this and also to do the post-production and things of that nature. And $12,000 for a documentary of this nature. And if you look at it, it's very well shot. They have real equipment. It's not just some guy using this uh, iPhone. $12,000 is not that much here. Um, so it's a feature-length documentary about mom-pop retail shops that still sell physical, physical goods in the face of an increasingly digital marketplace. Uh, this is the description. A snapshot of the state of small business in America and the path forward with digital libraries. So... It's only a few guys putting this together, I believe. It's only like three guys. There's going to be interviews. If you, if you watch the, the video, you can see. But they actually went to the Library of Congress. Because this is an issue that Ian and I brought up before about preservation for the future with the onslaught of digital. What happens to games 50 years from now that are tied to cell phones that are thrown out, that are not available again? What happens to um, games that are digital download only on consoles? And then 50 years from now, they're forgotten. There's no way to access them. They are on PS3 consoles. And there's no way to easily play them anymore. What do you do? So this this that that's an important issue to me. So the fact that they went to the Library of Congress to talk to, to, to people about that, because they, they preserve movies, books, everything, um, and video games. That's, that's an important conversation to have. And I'm glad that they're taking that step uh, to do that. Um, let's see, they're, they're, they're using a rental car that went out to New England and North Carolina to Oklahoma to Chicago and Canada. So they're going to be talking to limited run games, limited run guys that I spoke to as well. Uh, Josh and Doug doing a great job. They've only been around for like a year and a half. Uh, they're the ones putting out physical releases of digital games. Uh, they just did, uh, Wonder Boy Dragon's Trap. They're talking to Psionics. Uh, they're the guys that do Rocket League. They're out in San Diego. Hey, may I talk to them? Me and Ian at Luna Video Games. They're going to the National Video Game Museum out in Texas, run by Joe Santulli. Uh, this, this is what's planned uh, here. So check out, check it out. Um, it's on. Unfortunately, it's not the best URL here, uh, but it's search for not for resale, and that's on Indiegogo. And I think the plan is that 
if they get a decent amount of money, then they can go and visit more mom and pop shops. Uh, in speaking to to um, in speaking to the Kevin, I think the goal is to go to twenty to thirty mom and pop shops that are out there, which is a decent number. You probably don't want to do more than that uh, for a documentary. You don't want to do that. I think the goal is it for it to be like about a hundred minute documentary, not too long, and to really get the experience from you know find out from the people that open these shops you know it's, it's a love of retro games sure but it's the experience of coming in it's the experience of the physical game owning it like you can always say yes anyone can go out and download any of the games you see on this wall here and play them but what what drives someone to you know rent out a store uh you know lease a store storefront hire employees invest a lot of money in order to provide physical media to someone you know, the same argument for why, why why does someone bother opening a CD or record store in this day and age? Will physical media go away? Yeah, probably eventually. We'll be dead. It's going to be around for a while, though, still. At least for our, our generation. And, um, yeah. Check it out again. I'll try not to shill it too much, but it seems like a good pro- uh, project. I try not to promote or talk about these Kickstarters too much. Uh, I've, unless I, it's something I really think is going to be a worthwhile project. I've not. I've gone out of my way to not talk about other retro video game um, documentaries. I didn't feel that they were up to snuff, and it's not something that I thought was worth my time or my audience's time. But this seems like something that could be nice. But but check out the the. I think it's like a four minute video. Check it out for yourself and see if something that you'd either want to support or just spread the word. It's uh, not for resale. A video game store documentary film. Some somewhat sad news. And uh, I wish Ian was not ill to talk about this because, you know, we, we joke about Zack Snyder in the past, you know, ruining the DC movie universe. And in my opinion, he's done a good job not to represent it well. But this is sad news. And I think I feel like I don't want to avoid this information just because, you know, if we if we took shots at the guy in the past professionally, we should at least at least show respect, at least personally, when it comes to this. But. Uh, Zack Snyder stepped down from the Justice League film, which is in post-production, uh, because, unfortunately, his uh, his daughter committed suicide. Uh, his daughter um, was about 20 years old, so he had to step down. Uh, he tried to, uh, to, to his either credit or to his detriment, try to get over a tragic loss of a family member by trying to work on through post-production. Because uh, this, this has been edited for a while. There are some reshoots planned for Justice League, um, and it's it's not clear whether or not it's because people don't like the cut or or, or Zack Snyder's work, but uh, Joss Whedon, who directed Avengers one and two, is going to step in to help finish do the reshoots and also to uh, do the post production work, which is you know it's probably at least four or five more months left because this isn't coming out until uh, later in the year, what November seventeenth. Joss uh, went from the Marvel universe to the DCU. He's going to do a Batgirl movie. Um, he's done a good job. I think with the Avengers movies, pretty good job. He's probably a, a, the perfect person to step in. Um, he's probably, you know, dealt with Zach in terms of the lead up to this, but now being part of the, you know, the DC movie universe. Again, it's a tragic situation. I know we, we joke about Zack Snyder in the past. Ian said some stuff, um, that could be construed as, well, he personally hates the guy at the end of the day. No one, uh, wishes this much ill will on someone. Um, when it comes to dealing with a, a, a tragic death, um, a tragic death, and I think we don't realize or take for granted uh, how much time and and stress and energy 
and and blood, sweat, and tears go goes into producing a movie of this magnitude and the pressure that the person is under. Whether or not you agree with how well uh, Batman v Superman came out, um, and I, and from all intents and purposes, it, it, and I will see it eventually, but it looked like a, just a train wreck. Whether or not whether or not that's true. No one will deny the fact that the amount of energy and effort that goes into producing these films, and when it's something like this or Star Wars, you give away, you give up two years of your life to these projects, almost every freaking day, from finishing up the script, casting, pre-production work, art design, working with the CG artists up front, and you know about what's needed uh, for set pieces, um, choreographing. Uh, you know, fight scenes, having the actors come in, working with them before. And this is all before you're even shooting the fucking film. And what a what a you know two to three month, sometimes four month process that is when you're shooting a movie this big, working you know seven days a week. You're working fourteen, fifteen hour days, or sometimes more, sometimes twenty hour days. And then once the movie's finished, you're going into the editing room, and you're dealing with that. Then CG work and working with those guys. Then the reshoots. And then you're doing that, and then you're still editing, and then you're working with the composer, and then you're doing the, you know, you're doing the the month and a half of, you know, you think you're done, then you got to promote the movie and do all the interviews and fly around the world. And this, this is, I'm not saying this is, you know, feel sorry for these people. They chose it, but it's grueling work. So in the midst of all this, there's a tragedy. And, and, And Zack Snyder said, I decided to take a step back from the movie to be with my family, be with my kids who really need me. And that's a tough call because uh, you think you can get lost in your work and, 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 you know, get away from the tragedy. But, you know, th- that could be maybe it's better. You just, you know, give it up, give up this work you've been doing for a while and then go back to your family because that's what matters at the end of the day. This movie doesn't fucking matter. I, I know me and Ian rail about, you know, the DC Universe, um, Suicide Squad. Batman v Superman, how dark everything is. And in the, the day, it's frivolous when it comes to real, you know, real family matters here, a personal loss. You know, if another fucking DC movie never came out again in the grand scheme of things, it wouldn't affect anything. So we've had our rough times, Zack Snyder and the CU podcast. We absolutely uh, have had rough times. Hopefully, you know, it was all in good fun. You know, we didn't wish anything bad on a person to happen. We we didn't wish something bad to happen. And there were assholes out there that were glad that this happened because then he's off the project. Just don't, don't fucking go there. This is a real person you're talking about dealing with family tragedy. Um, he tried to keep this uh, private, and then it, it's come out because he you know he he, had, he finally decided to leave uh, the film. This happened I think a couple months ago. So the fact that he tried to keep it private to me is mind blowing. But obviously, he needed a, way, a reason to step away from the project. And this is it. So, uh, Autumn, his daughter, is gone. It's from his first marriage. And um, hopefully, he heals. Hopefully, his family um, can heal from this. Hopefully, he can heal. And hopefully, he can move on and come back in the future to direct. So, um, uh, here, here's to you, Zack Snyder. I, I, hope this, uh, I hope this isn't as bad as what it seems like it is. And hopefully in the future, you know, you'll direct something that I'll be looking out for that I can help, you know, not promote, but at least, you know, give my give my stamp of approval to it. And I'm sure Ian feels the same way.
Time now for that wacky story on the CU podcast, the click baity one. Man suing his date for texting during Guardians of the Galaxy 2. This comes from the Statesman, which is uh, an Austin, Texas, I guess, uh, periodical newspaper, online site. Uh, comes up from the Alamo Draft House. Uh, there's been an update to the story, which I'll get to. A man is suing a Round Rock woman. That's not the type of person she is. That's where she's from. Round Rock woman for texting during a movie date at the Barton Creek Square Theater. He filed it in small claims court. Brandon Vesmer, 37, of Austin, filed a claim against his date. He's asking for $17.31, which is the price of the movie ticket, to a 3D showing of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which, by the way, was a good movie. The 35-year-old woman... Reached by phone, said she didn't know about the claim. She asked her, her name not be used. She said, oh my God, this is crazy. All right. He met the woman online, uh, Vesmer, and he went on her first date May 6th to a movie. By the way, uh, if you're out there listening to this, for I know you're not seeking relationship advice from me. Maybe, that, maybe that's for the Not So Common Podcast. A movie is the worst place for a first date or even second date, I would argue. You don't have a chance to interact with the person, get to know them, see if the, you know if the, how the chemistry is. A date is almost an excuse not to talk to someone for two hours, and you pay for it. Just go to a nice restaurant, you know, go out, do a fun activity where you interact. Don't go to the movies for a first date anyway. Uh, da, da, da. They went on their first date. He said it was kind of a first date from hell. About 15 minutes after the movie began, Vesmer said, his date started texting on her phone. This is like one of my biggest pet peeves. Well... I'm hoping it was just because she wasn't interested in you at all, but if you're watching a movie, you don't have to be interested in your date at all to have a good time. You can just watch the huge 80-foot screen in front of you. Um, Vesmer said the woman activated her phone, phone at least 10 to 20 times in 15 minutes to read and send text messages. That's a lot for a movie. Maybe get get away with it for once or twice. Uh, he said he asked her to stop but refused. He said he told her that maybe she should go outside to text. She left the theater and never came back. She left in her car, which they had driven to the theater, leaving Vesmer without a ride, he said. He said he texted her a few days later asking for the price of the ticket, but she refused to pay it. So they went in her car, I guess. Um, and then, so he was now out of the, the movie ticket price he felt was owed to him, but also I guess he Ubered it back home or took a lift uh, back there. So he's out of that as well, but he's not asking for that price left. Uh, that's very, very funny part of the story, too. I wonder if he realized that. Oh, shit. I told her to leave the theater. Maybe she won't be coming back, and I gotta spend 20 bucks to Uber at home uh, at, you know, 11.30 at night. All right. Um, the woman said she only texted two or three times. I had my phone low, and I wasn't bothering anybody. She was texting a friend, the story says, who was having a fight with her boyfriend. It wasn't like constant texting. All right. So, I usually... Don't turn my phone off before the movie. I at least turn off the ringer because I'm not an animal. All right, you should at least turn the ringer off. And if I do get a text, I will look at it maybe quickly. But even I know if I do that, that light in a dark theater, the light is distracting to everyone behind you and to the side for like 35 feet at least. You go from watching, you know, it's all darkness, and then, oh, you see a beacon of light right in front of you. Even if the phone is low, that light comes out. It is a distraction uh, to be texting besides that, to be on your phone. 
And if it was that important, uh, leave the theater. If, if she's going through a breakup, that's that sucks. Uh, have some common courtesy. Leave the theater. So I agree with that. Uh, it might be going a little bit too far to sue, though. But he's making a point, and this was national news, I think, uh, about this. That, that's what makes it so funny, that this guy, you might think he's an asshole. He's standing up for what he thinks is right, and he's trying to shame this person. Uh, and, and, and basically, he's firing the first shot in the war against texting and in, in using phones in, in movie theaters. People have been shot uh, over this stuff in movie theaters, about talking too loudly, not getting off their cell phone. This is important stuff. And until... That you know they approve the you know cell phone blockers in theaters that the movie theater chains want to, you know this stuff's going to happen. People are going to get pissed at other people using their phones. So this guy is making a point. You might think, oh, he's being an asshole. What's wrong with them? Uh, I, I I somewhat applaud this guy's moxie for doing this and facing criticism for wanting. It's the principle, seventeen dollars and thirty one cents. He's going to pay a lot more in just filing. The fee to go into small claims court, I bet it's at least like, you know, 50 or $100 just for the court, uh, court case to show up in the future. But here's the update. There is an up- update. The Almo Draft House, which is the, the, the famous movie theater this was happened at, CEO Tim League offered the, a $17.31 gift certificate to settle the lawsuit. Uh, <laughs> not the cash, just a gift certificate. So he's got to come back and potentially, with another date, face awful behavior again that's going to happen. Uh, the CEO, Tim League, learned about the lawsuit, filed, and he said, On one hand, I, I concern, I'm concerned about our cor- courts being clogged with superfluous lawsuits. This is a threat to civilized society. Uh, <laughs> he thinks that, yes, uh, Vesmer, Vesmer doesn't like the texting in the theaters. Uh, so Tim League is going to try to help out here. Uh he said that if Vesmer dropped the, would drop the case, Alamo Draft House would pay for that movie ticket. There you have it. Um, we'll see if it gets this far. I wonder if 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 this is going to be like showing up on the People's Court or Judge Judy. That would be hysterical for this woman. This is a nightmare uh, that this has become a national story. For Vesmer, Vesmer, he thinks he's doing God's work. And you know what? I am more apt to believe with him. Uh, taking that stand to turn off your fucking cell phone uh, while you're in a movie theater. Um, Or at least, you know, after a couple times, get your ass out of there and take care of it. That does it for this edition of the CU Podcast. You know, there's a Patreon for the CU Podcast. It's patreon.com slash CU Podcast. And now we have a new tier that I'm putting up. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to just, you know, tinker with it a bit. There's going to be a call-in number, a call-in number from the CU Podcast patrons. Just for you guys, there's going to be a number that is going to be available that every podcast going forward with with episode 100, we are going to play back your question or message from us. Just sign up on patreon.com slash podcast. Go to that Patreon call-in tier. You're going to then be able to get that good old um, message message you'll be able to get the post with the phone number it's a google google voice number leave a message say who you are from the patreon so we know who you are and we'll play your message on air and we will answer or react to your funny and or non non sequitur or your your question we'll we'll uh, we'll give it a good a good sort of a go on it and that'll be a segment going forward on the cu podcast so again again 
patreon.com slash CU Podcast. If you want to advertise with the CU Podcast, shoot me an email at CU Podcast at the punk effect dot com. I will be attending too many games, uh, and that is in Oaks, Pennsylvania. That is June 23rd to the 25th. Ian is hoping to be there as well. At this point, he plans on going. He pl- he's planning on going. Hopefully, his health keeps up there. So go to too many games dot com for information there. Um, yeah, anything else going on? Yeah, nothing, nothing else. Just another solo podcast. The 100th episode will be there in a couple of weeks. Um, recording around June 6th. Be on the lookout for that. Thanks so much, guys, for helping get us to this point. 99 episodes, three and a half years, uh, almost four years. It's been great fun. Hopefully not going anywhere anytime soon. But look out for the 100th episode. It's uh, it's going to be a special one. I hope it's going to be. So, for my partner who's not feeling well, Ian Ferguson, I'm Pat Contry. We will see you for the Centennial See You Podcast.